So this is uh, the uh, last lesson for your leadership training. And coincidentally, I'm teaching on the last days, which Tim asked me to teach on. So um, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to not love the things of this world, that we would set our hearts on heavenly things, that you would give us hope and faith in the promise of being with our Redeemer for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at biblical eschatology. You can follow along in your notes, same format. We're on number one right now. Eschatology is the study of last things, um, or of the future generally. The word eschatology is from the Greek eschatos, meaning last, and ology meaning study of. So it's literally the study of the last. And the eschaton is the final event. When people say, I can't wait for the eschaton. That's the last day, the final event, the last thing. Okay? So eschatology is, is the part of theology concerned with what are believed to be the final events in history or the ultimate destiny of humanity, the end of the world. Number two, eschatology's aim is that you feel encouraged, excited, and eager for the return of King Jesus. As C.S. Lewis said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do, meant to do. So to understand eschatology, it must not be thought of something which is found only some books such as Daniel and Revelation, but is dominating and permeating the entire message of the Bible. Number three, Christianity is eschatology, is hope, is forward-looking and forward-moving. The eschatological is not one element of Christianity, but it is the medium, the medium of the Christian faith, the key to which everything is set. Without belief in, the, in a biblical eschatology, there is no Christian hope, and one thing that all millennial views can agree on, in the end, Christ is victorious. Now, and this is not on your notes, eschatology is a divisive issue, especially among conservative Christians. Someone wants to find the millennium as a thousand-year period of time during which Christians fight over the proper interpretation of the book of Revelation. So tonight we're not talking about Catholics or Seventh-day Adventists, JWs, or Mormons. What, are we, what we are studying tonight is the primary views in the evangelical Christian church. And I want to pass along some advice an old elder here at Spring Meadows once told me. He said, it was Woody, he says, Mark, don't fall on your sword for your eschatology. So there's better hills to die on than that, but... One of the things we'll find out as we study on is there are some people who will. <clears throat> for some people, it is their eschatology is their everything. So number four, for the most part, differing ideas of the millennium are not a test for orthodoxy. All Christians profess with the Apostles' Creed that at some point in the future, Christ will come to judge the living and dead. It's not even contemplated in the Westminster Confession of Faith except where we said the Pope was the Antichrist in the 1647 version of the Westminster Confession. 
I believe the only requirement for church membership related to eschatology is confessing the personal and physical, the physical return of Christ to consummate history. And I'm going to use that word consummate a lot. And basically, um, the word consummate means to make complete, to make perfect. It's finalized. If someone says the deal was consummated, contracts were signed, it's done. It's finalized. finalized. So I emphasize the words personal and physical to highlight the fact that hyper-preterists, and we'll talk about them in a minute, are outside the bounds of evangelical orthodoxy. Number five, we're going to focus on four differing views of the end times or millennial views and their teaching regarding the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of them use the word millennial. Millennium is two L's and two N's, just for your help. It's a compound of two Latin terms, mille meaning thousand and annus meaning year. So when it's used in regarding to the second coming, it means the thousand years reign, R-E-I-G-G-N. That's what it is. <coughs> Which the Apostle Paul speaks of in Revelation 20. And by the way, it's not revelations, it's revelation. You know, my son caught me on that one the other day, and he just, man, he was so quick to punch in. Sons do that, you know. Very critical. Okay. So the prefix, prefixes pre and post before the word millennium have to do with the timing of the second coming of Christ in relationship to the millennium itself. So premillennial means the second coming before the millennium. Millennium. Premillennial. Christ comes before the millennium. Post-millennial, second coming after the millennium. Amillennial is second coming after a non-literal millennium. Non-literal. So before we look at the four millennial views, let's look at a few different ways of interpreting Revelation. Each view approaches the book from a different perspective. And, and by the way, we're going to be studying four views and there's a lot of shades of gray for each view. So if I'm saying something that doesn't sound like what you understand about a millennial view, don't raise your hand. What about, I get it, I know. I'm talking about the primary thrust, the primary people who... And basically what I'm doing is I'm using the voice uh, of those who are promoting a particular millennial view for each view. And then I'm voicing the critiques that those views have every other view. So that's kind of what we're doing. So number six, there are basically four ways to approach Revelation. Futurist, historicist, idealist, and preterist. Number seven, the futurist is yet to be fulfilled. As you might expect, believes that the fulfillment of the prophecies in Revelation will happen exclusively in the future. Number eight, the historicist, which is getting fulfilled throughout history, believes that the prophecies of Revelation have been gradually fulfilled across church history, starting with the time of John, who wrote Revelation, and proceeding up to the present day, and on into, until Jesus returns. And quite frankly, there are not many people... Um, in pop popular millennial views, they use the historicist um, approach. 
Number nine, the idealist is repeated pattern of fulfillment. It takes the view that the events of Revelation aren't tied to particular historical events, but symbolically represent the ongoing struggle between good and evil. And the preterist, number 10, means already fulfilled. It believes that many or all of the events described in Revelation were in John's immediate future, and what I mean by immediate is in the first century A.D., and have therefore already been fulfilled in our past, such as this destruction of Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. The word preteris comes from the Latin meaning past. Number 10, moderate or partial preterists, preterists need to be distinguished from hyperpreterists. And by the way, a real famous partial preterist was R.C. Sproul. Okay, hyperpreterists were the Hymenean heresy from 1 Timothy 2.17 insist the second coming and the rapture will fulfilled by A.D. 70 with every prophecy and promise in the New Testament was fulfilled by A.D. 70. Hyperpreterism is not a, legit, a legitimate evangelical option. In fact, it is considered heretical because it denies Jesus' future bodily return, denies the physical resurrection of believers at the end of history, <clears throat> and denies the physical renewal, recreation of the present heavens and earth. And by the way, one of the reasons I'm teaching this is we've had hyperpreterists at Spring Meadows. And it's a rough thing when you discover that. I mean, basically, we, we employed some discipline, suspended them from the sacraments, took them off the worship team. But we get a lot of wacky stuff in here. Okay? That's why I'm teaching you so that you as leaders will be able to recognize it when you see it. Number 12, because Revelation 20 is found in one of the most difficult books of the New Testament, its proper interpretation is disputed. As a result, there are four main views of the millennium held within the church today. Historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, amillennialism, and theonomic postmillennialism. Any questions so far? Okay, we're going to start with amillennialism. We're doing good on time. Number 13. The term amillennial means no millennium, just like atheist means not a theist. <coughs> Many people misunderstand this belief when they say amillennialists don't believe in a literal reign. Okay, I want you to remember. It's one of the things. The millennium means Jesus' reign. It's a thousand years of Jesus' reign. Okay, that's what it is. For Amils, the reign of Christ is literal, though the, the thousand years is symbolic. It is better to understand this as present millennialism, now millennialism, or realized millennialism, since amillennialism emphasizes the present reality of the millennium. Number 14. Amillennialists believe that the millennial age described in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, refers to the present reign of Christ in heaven. And in parentheses, I should put, of his kingdom on earth. Jesus is sitting in David's throne 
in heaven. He is reigning as king today. Okay? That the thousand years is a symbolic reference to the entire period of time between Christ's first coming and his second advent. So the millennium is already taking place right now. The saints are reigning with Christ in heaven as we speak. Satan is currently bound, and Christians are enjoying the benefits today of living in the millennium. 15. All amillennialists used to be called postmillennialists since they affirm that the second coming of Christ occurs after or post the millennial kingdom. So the term amillennial is relatively, and nobody knows exactly when it came into common use, but nearly all of the great Christian reformers, Martin Luther, John Knox, Ulrich Zingli, Philip Melanchthon, were on mill. I'm going to use abbreviations, amill for amillennialists, pre-mill for historic dispensationalists, for, and post-mill for theonomic post-mills. So... Amillennialism was always the majority eschatological view of the historic Reformed Christian Church and still is. And as far as I know, um, full disclosure, I'm on mill. Okay? You might guess that. I try to give every millennial view a fair shake here, but I just want to let you know where I'm coming from. I believe I, Tim is on mill. As far as I know, most of the leaders. Ed, are you on mill? Okay, so. I know, we have to say that. We're optimistic. We're optimistic on mills. Okay, so. 16. Amillennialism utilizes the covenantal hermeneutic, which uses a literal alongside an allegorical interpretation of Scripture. The covenantal hermeneutic uses the redemptive historical method, which takes each word in its normal sense, unless the context or grammar demands otherwise, and it considers the historical setting of the author, book, and audience in making interpretive decisions. This approach has an extra feature. It is focused on finding how every passage of Scripture is centered, centered on Jesus Christ. So they, they use what we called earlier the idealist, okay? So that's kind of along the lines of allegorical. They're similar words. So 17, covenant theology basically says that God operates through one overarching covenant of grace, which remains constant from Genesis 3.15 to the consummation. The covenantal hermeneutic emphasizes that Israel is the true spiritual spiritual Israel, the people of God, and is not identical with the physical offspring of Abraham. So we are Israel. Okay. 18. <clears throat> Amillennialism teaches that the circumstances of believers during the present age is one of conformity to the pattern of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Only through tribulation and suffering, which are often referred to as wilderness wanderings. Didn't you do a series of sermons on wilderness wanderings, Tim? Yeah. Okay. That's because he's an amillennialist. So only through tribulation and suffering, wilderness wanderings, 
New believers enter the kingdom and anticipate the fullness of their glorification and union with Christ. So the basic pattern of the church's life in this present age is one of victory. Victory in the midst of suffering and participations in the afflictions of Christ. 19. The amillennial does not read Revelation in chronological order as the other three views do, but as a series of seven recapitulations, <clears throat> each of which depicts the church and the world from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of the second, much like a movie skips around in time or instant replay from seven different angles. This is also known as progressive parallelism. Recapitulation. So, this is going to become real important when we're comparing to the other theologies. Number 20. Unlike dispensationalists, Amils would see the phrase, and I saw, which is at the beginning of Revelation 20, to indicate the sequence in which John received the visions. Not that the events of Revelation 20 sequentially follow in time after Revelation 19, only that the visions were sequential. Revelation 20 clearly begins a new vision, but it is a theological replay of the same events which began in Reve Revelation 16. Recapitulation, recapitulation. Any questions so far? Okay. I've got a timeline here for on Mills, and you should have a, a time chart in the back if you want to follow that. The charts, the time charts aren't perfect. Is it there? Yes. <coughs> There's no blanks to fill in during timelines so that you can pay attention and follow the time chart if you want. So the timeline for Amils is number 21. Christ's kingdom has come, is coming, and will come. The kingdom of God is a present reality, though it is not yet consummated. The next event on the prophetic calendar is the return of Jesus Christ to earth, even though that coming is to be preceded by signs. For example, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, the conversion of the fullness of Israel, that's the optimistic amillennialist we're talking about. The great apostasy, the great tribulation, and the coming of the Antichrist. These signs, however, must not be thought of as referring exclusively to the time just preceding Christ's return. They have been present in some sense from the beginning of the Christian era and are present now. The binding of Satan occurs at the onset of Christ's kingdom at his first advent. The binding of Satan is not a complete undoing of all his power. Rather, it is specifically re related to the spread of the gospel. Satan is now bound in the sense that he can no longer absolutely prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations or unite the world to destroy the church. During this thousand-year period, as it were, the souls of believers who have died are now living and reigning with Christ in heaven while they await the resurrection of the body. 
Their state is therefore a state of blessedness and happiness, though their joy will not be complete until their bodies have been raised. This age will be characterized by the spread of the gospel, but also by the spread of sin. There will be no golden age, as the other three views use, before Christ returns. <clears throat> Jesus has already begun to reign as king. Ephesians 1, 20-22. But his kingdom is still growing. Matthew 13, 24 and forward. And not all of his enemies have yet been defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26. We have been given the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment and first fruits of our inheritance in the age to come. But we have not received our full inheritance or the full harvest. The kingdom is already, but not yet. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Hey, Tim says it all the time. So we believe Christ reigns today already. He, has, he is victorious, but we, we don't have the full payoff yet. Already, but not yet. In the days immediately before the return of Jesus, Satan will be released from his prison. Oh, thank you. Man, I need that. From his prison in the abode of the dead. Satan will manage to deceive the nations for the express purpose of waging war upon the church of Jesus Christ. The battle has nothing to do with the plains of Megiddo, the nation of Israel, or the armies of the world fighting against Christ. Here, John has given us an apocalyptic vision. And that word apocalyptic, anybody know what that means? It just means the destruction of the world. That's what apocalyptic literature is. It's the destruction of the world. So John's given us an apocalyptic vision of Satan's final assault upon the church. An assault which is crushed by Jesus Christ at his, at his return to earth in judgment. On that day, says John, Satan and all his henchmen, the beast and false prophet, along with kings and the nations who serve them, are thrown into the lake of fire. This is judgment day. When God's wrath is completed, Christ is triumphant and the rebellious nations are defeated and Satan is cast into the lake of fire. So, at the end of the millennial age, Christ returns in judgment of all men. His coming will bring an end to history and to this age. The general resurrection occurs, final judgment takes place, and the new heavens and earth are established. Unbelievers and all those who have rejected Christ shall spend eternity in hell, whereas believers will enter into everlasting glory and glorified bodies on the new earth. The kingdom is finally no longer not yet. It is consummated. Old Testament prophecies which predict that the land of promise shall be everlasting possession of the people of God, that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and that the earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered of the sea shall be fulfilled, not just for a thousand year period, but for all eternity. So basically they're saying all of those prophecies are not about a golden age on earth. It's eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So the amillennial hope is not on the intermediate state. The intermediate state is when our souls go to heaven to be with Jesus, but we don't have our bodies yet. 
The great hope here is for the second coming, the resurrection of the body, and the new heavens and the new earth. So we see, as all millennials, a lot of those prophecies happening after Jesus comes back. After we have a new heaven and a new earth. Okay. If all the other views would shift the focus of hope to consummate, to consummate um, fulfillment in the new earth, then the remaining differences would seem minor. Because most of them see a lot of those prophecies happening in our age. Okay? I can tell we're going to have to rush this. So, dispensational objections. Dispensationalists accuse the amillennialists of spiritualizing Scripture and interpreting it literally. They think it's wrong for amills to interpret the Old Testament from the New Testament. That's the way they do it. They interpret the New Testament from the Old Testament. They, they think it's wrong for amills to say that Israel forfeited all its promises and privileges they think it's not biblical for Amils to teach that there is no kingdom coming for ethnic Israel or a promises given to Abraham or David. Number 23, post-mill critique. What does Christ's millennial reign affect, they want to know? Does he extend his reign by subduing his enemies? Are covenantal blessings for the people of God possible in history? In history? Amillennial pessimism is here is not already not yet, but an already never dialectic. And that's pretty typical of postmillennialists are pretty militant. And they love to punch under the belt. Okay. <clears throat> Twenty-four. Post mills say the Bible teaches that the world is to be converted to Christianity before Christ returns. And that the amillennial position, which makes no provision for a Christianized world, leaves a whole continent of prophecies unexplained, many of which then become quite meaningless. That's because we say they're fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth. See, they say it's fulfilled on earth before Christ comes. We're talking about post mills. 25 post mills. And see, you're learning a little bit about post, about post mills before we talk about them just by listening to their critiques. 25 post mills wonder how it can be that one, the nations are being disciplined and brought to Christ, and two, that tribulation apostasy, the spirit of Antichrist, are characteristic marks of the present period of redemptive history. On the one, reign of Christ, this description sounds post-millennial. And by the way, these are actual remarks from somebody who's post-mill. It sounds post-millennial. But on two, the marks of the present period, it sounds pessimillennialist. We had a pastor here at one time who was a theonomic post-millennialist. That's what he called me all the time. You're just a pessimillennialist, Mark. That's what they say. So why not just say Christ's reign is present, but it will fail? We could rename it flunkamillennialism. If no victory on earth, how does the Amil account for Isaiah 
blah, blah, blah. That's the way of the arm. Okay, 26. Huh? Flunk, flunk, flunk. Like you flunked your grade? We're flunk millennialists. Twenty-six, the historic pre-mill critique. Many amillennialists and historic premillennialists agree at virtually every point except Revelation chapter twenty. The amillennial view, in their position, does not adequately do justice to the language of Revelation twenty verses one to three. According to the amillennial view, Satan is unable to deceive the nations as he did before the first coming of Christ but he is still active and able to do harm in this age. His activities, then, have not ceased, but are limited. According to the text, Satan is bound with a great chain and thrown into the abyss that is shut and sealed for a thousand years. So they think they're a little light on how our mills talk about Jesus being bound. Next is number 27. Post or pre mills, historic pre mills say, well, what about the first resurrection in Revelation 20? Is John referring to regeneration or the bodily resurrections? Because we don't really say. And by the way, there's only one resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20. A second resurrection is only implied. See? <clears throat> but if you read modern Ah Mills, they would say the resurrection, the first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20 could either be the rebirth of a person when they get a new heart, become regenerate, or it's when they die and they go to heaven to be with Jesus. That one of, Either one of those is the first resurrection. And this resurrection business has a lot of meaning, especially for, we don't hardly bother with it. You know, for them, it's, man, this, this is critical stuff. Okay? So now, any questions on amillennialism? Next is historic premillennialism, or what you might call post, pre-mill, post-trib. Pre-mill, post-trib. Because a little later, we're going to talk about dispensationalists who were pre-mill, pre-trib. This, this, this should be language that just flows off your tongue. And if you're around this place long enough, you're going to hear it, believe me. 28. Modern historic premillennialism is usually associated with a futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation. Historic premillennialism draws its name from the fact that the early historic church fathers held on to this, held to this theology. Most historians acknowledge that a premillennial faith was the dominant eschatological belief in the church from the apostolic age until the time of Augustine. In times past, it was known as Chileism. Am I pronouncing that right, Tim? Chileism? Okay. I looked up every word but that one. And in one of the Nicene councils, I think Chileism was banned. So that just goes to show you. Achilleism is after the Greek word for a thousand. So in our discussions, I'm going to call it pre-mill for short. Noted pre-mill Presbyterians are Francis Schaeffer, Gordon Clark, and James Montgomery Boyce. 
So the starting point for the premillennialist view of the millennium is the claim that the events depicted in the vision of Revelation 20 follow in time sequentially of the events that are depicted in Revelation 19. The sequence of visions in Revelation 19 and 20 should be, in this view, read chronologically. When read in this manner, the simple, simplest and most straightforward reading according to the premillennialist, the visions in these chapters of Revelation describe a number of events in series that are sequential. So Revelation 19 depicts the return of Christ, while Revelation 20 depicts the reign of Christ on earth. 19, the return. Revelation 20, the reign. So here he comes before the millennium, right? Number 30. Perhaps the most vital part of the premillennialist argument from Revelation 20, however, is the reference to a first resurrection. Here, premillennialists believe they have a strong argument for their position on the millennium. In verses 4 to 6, the first resurrection is described by, as follows by premillennialists. The description of the coming to life of believing saints who reign with Christ during the, during the millennium is of decisive importance. Only believing saints are said to come to life in this way and participate in the first resurrection. By contrast, the rest of the dead, this will make sense to you in a minute, okay? The rest of the dead remained in the grave and do not come to life until the thousand years are completed. These raptured saints are not subject to the second death, unlike the believing who do not enjoy the first resurrection and will come to life only to be cast forever in the lake of fire. Number 31. In historic post-mill, Israel is the true spiritual Israel. The people of God includes the church. Not identical with the physical offspring of Abraham, Abraham same as Amel's. So here's the timeline. <coughs> When Jesus began his public ministry, the kingdom of God was manifest through his ministry. Upon his ascension into heaven and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, the kingdom is present through the Holy Spirit until the return of Christ for his kingdom reign. The starting point for the premillennialist understanding of the millennium is the claim that the events depicted in the vision in Revelation 20 follow in time sequentially the events that are depicted in Revelation 19. The sequence of visions in Revelation 19 and 20 should be, in this view, read chronologically. When read this way, the insistence that the return of Christ precedes the millennium seems indisputable. In this system, rather than the belief of an imminent return of Christ, it is held that a number of historical events like the rise of the beast and false prophet, must take place before Christ's second coming. So during the period immediately preceding the return of Christ, there is great apostasy and tribulation. So premillennialism expects that believers will go through a time of great tribulation before Christ returns. Here Christ comes before the millennium 
but after the tribulation, ergo, pre-mill, post-trib. Christ comes before the millennium, but after the tribulation. This is a very key element of the historic pre-mill position known as post-tribulationalism. That is, the rapture of the church occurs after the period of tribulation. The historic pre-mill position holds that the church will be protected in the tribulation, not taken out of the tribulation. So here, everybody is left behind. Aha, good, you got the joke. Premillennialists all agree, contrary to amillennialism and postmillennialism, that Christ will return before the millennial millennium, hence pre. <clears throat> so the millennium here is a golden age of a thousand years of space-time history. And George Ladd, who's one of the preeminent uh, historical premillennialists, doesn't think it's literal, but they do believe in a golden age, okay? In historical premillennialism, when Jesus returns, and the fancy word is that is the parousia, he is coming to set up an earthly kingdom that is far greater and more wondrous in kind than our present existence, but not as great and wondrous as the final eternal state. Just as Jesus' first coming was an invasion into space-time history, so for premillennials, the second coming will also be a divine invasion into space-time history. Not the end of space-time in history, as Ah Mills would say. So the second coming, in this view, is a single event. There's no secret rapture or third coming, as the dispensationalists proclaim. The millennium separates the first resurrection from the second resurrection. The rapture is where the saints, living and dead, shall meet the Lord in the clouds, immediately preceding his millennial reign, in resurrection bodies with Christ. Okay? So you go to heaven and then you have to come back to earth. It's a physical reign on earth. It's an earthly kingdom. But the reign is from earth as well. So, the rapture is where the saints living and dead shall meet the Lord in the clouds immediate preceding their millennial reign in resurrection bodies. So, this first resurrection includes the rapture of living believers and a bodily resurrection of those who are dead in Christ. He will set up with these faithful ones a reign of a thousand years that will restore the earth to a paradise-like state, but not the full paradise of the final eternal state. During Christ's millennial reign, there is great peace and prosperity during which people still give birth, to children and die. During the millennium, Satan will be bound. Kingdom will be consummated, that is, made visible. So for them, consummated means something different. The kingdom is consummated in that it's visible. By contrast to his previous freedom to access, exercise influence and deceive the nations, the binding of Satan will not only curtail, but completely exclude any of working of Satan among the people and nations of the earth. Christ and his people will enjoy the period Satan is bound, an unprecedented period of relief from Satan's wiles. The nations will be subject to Christ's blessed reign, blah, 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 blah. 
is commonly suggested on the basis of texts like Roman 11.26 that numerous Jews will place their faith in Christ at the time of his appearing. At the end of the millennial period, Satan will be loosed and there will be a massive rebellion of Gog and Magog immediately preceding the second resurrection or final judgment. Okay, so here's the order of events again if it's not clear in your mind. Christ comes before the millennium. Christ comes down, the millennium starts. Satan's bound. Christ is reigning with his saints that were raptured, who had spent that time in heaven. Now they're back on earth reigning with him in their, in their glorified bodies. Then there's a second resurrection. Uh, and the second resurrection is for those of the damned. Any questions on the timeline? They're not quite as specific about those people as the dispensationalism. When we get when we get to dispensationalism, which is next, I mean it's like four-dimensional chess compared to this stuff. This is checkers, man, compared to dispensationalism. Um, Let's go through the arguments. <clears throat> Number 33 is an all-mill and post-mill catrique. Doesn't that strike you as a little dangerous to give the figure of a thousand years a literal meaning when almost every other figure in the book of Revelation is symbolic? The term thousand is used a number of times in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 50.10 says that the cow upon a thousand hills is mine. 34. These are critiques again. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says, in short, that at the second coming, Christians enjoy, enjoy eternal glory and non-Christians experience eternal destruction in hell. Hence, there are no human beings left with bodies in a non-final state. There was no one who could populate a supposed millennium in order that more children might be born and that some human beings would still experience a later physical death. Number 35. Against the argument that only the premillennial conception of the millennial reign satisfies the image of Christ ruling with a rod of iron, cited in Revelation 19.15, Amils would say that Christ is ruling with a rod of iron now, since Psalm 2 is interpreted as a present reality by the apostles. He now reigns from Zion's holy hill in 1 Peter 3.22, having all authority on heaven and earth in Matthew 28.18. Next critique, 36. <clears throat> Revelation 24 says, John saw souls, not people with bodies in the millennial reign. And nowhere in Revelation 20 does it say the millennial reign is on earth. 37. Jesus taught that his return marks the end of the age in Matthew 13, 39, and that after his return, people no longer are married or given in marriage. At Christ's return in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, he judges the world, making it tough for someone to be judged and yet not eternally condemned or rewarded with eternal life. And last, um, Revelation 19 or 20 
are not necessarily chronologically sequential as the ah-mills and post-mills say. This is a liter literary technique known as progressive parallelism, just like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is a recapitulation of Genesis 1. And here's a logical critique, kind of getting back to your question, Sandy. 39, the logical weakness that pre-mills has to explain is how that people make it through the return of Christ and yet remain in natural bodies, those who aren't raptured. It's a huge concern with the pre-mill position that unsaved men, unsaved men will be in the presence of the resurrected and glorified Christ. And can you imagine having to leave heaven to come back here? That's what they say. Any questions? I think we're doing good. Buckle your seatbelts. Next, we're going to talk about dispensational premillennialism. This completely new and different system of futurism, dispensationalism, began in the 1830s and usually traces its origin to the Plymouth Brethren movement in England. The teachings of dispensational premillennialism of prophecy have spread widely due to the influence of the 1909 Schofield Reference Bible and its subsequent editions. The great popularity of Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, 1970, probably did more than any book since the Schofield Reference Bible to spread the pre-trib view. So these guys are pre-mill, pre-trib. Also, the sensationally popular Left Behind Fiction series by Tim LaHaye. And by the way, I was scared into the kingdom by Hal Lindsey's book. I read it in 1970. Two, I think. Dispensationalism is probably the most prominent form of millennialism in contemporary evangelicalism. In fact, most people are surprised to hear that there is an, another view. They don't know that they're dispensational. See, they don't use those words. They just think there's one view of the end times, and they go, What? Uh, I'll tell you a little story here real quick since I think I have the time to tell it. We had, uh, when Spring Meadows owned the Jewish temple over on Oki, we had started a preschool. And it was, it was we had to hire a director, and she was someone who had been a director of preschools before. But she didn't attend Spring Meadows, but she had the credentials, so we hired her. And since at the time I was the elder in charge of all children's ministries, I was the guy who had to coordinate everything at the preschool. And she was coming up with a statement of faith that every teacher had to sign to be a, you know, orthodox approved teacher. And it was, she wanted everyone to sign that they were pre-mill, pre-trib. And I'm telling you, that is the touchstone of orthodoxy for most dispensationalists. They think that if they... They don't care if Tim preaches the gospel. To say that he doesn't believe in what we're about to read here is just astonishing to them. But anyway, okay, let's move forward. <clears throat> 41, dispensationalism said that God uses different means 
of administering his will and grace to his people. These different means coincide with different periods of time. Schofield says there are seven dispensations. One, the age of innocence from creation to the fall. Two, the age of conscience from the fall to the flood. Three, the age of human government from the flood to Babel, Noah to Abraham. Four, the age of promise from Abraham to the law at Mount Sinai. Five, the age of law from Sinai to Calvary or Moses to John the Baptist. Six, the age of grace, a.k.a. the church age, which is now. Right now, according to their prophetic calendar, we are in the dispensation of the church. And the last is seven, the age of the kingdom from Christ's second coming to the end of the millennium when eternity begins. This is the millennium of Revelation 20. 42, dispensationalism. God has two separate peoples. Israel in the Old Testament with her distinctive set of promises and destiny, and the church in the New Testament with her distinctive set of promises and destiny. Israel means the literal physical descendants of Jacob. And for them, Israel always means that, physical descendants of Abraham. That's literal. By the way, if you know anybody who goes to a John MacArthur church, he's one of the biggest dispensationalists out there, even though he's Reformed, okay? For him, Israel always means Israel. Jacob's kin, folks, okay? So, Israel means the literal, physical descendants of Jacob. God's purpose for the church us, will be fulfilled in heaven, while his purpose for modern ethnic Israel will be fulfilled on the earth. The church age, which we're in now, dispensation number six, We'll see God dealing with the church. Well, the millennium, we'll see the Lord dealing once again with modern ethnic Israel as a nation, dispensation seven. The church, us, dispensation six, is a parenthesis of interdeterminate length, 2023 years so far, between the prophetic 69th and 70, 70th weeks of Daniel. And by the way, many dispensationalists say that even in the new heavens and new earth, the church and Israel will not commingle. God will always teach us, treat them as different groups. I know, it's shocking, isn't it? It was for me too. 43. Dispensational interpretive approach looks at revelation from a futurist perspective. The millennial kingdom is entirely not yet with a favorite method of interpretation being what they call a strict literal. They take everything literally as they can. Of all the millennial views, we will examine this is the only view that allows the New Testament to be interpreted through the lens of the Old Testament. For dispensationalists, much of the New Testament, like the Gospels, is not for the church, but rather for ethnic Israel's use during the millennium, the most of church, Christ's ministry was taken up with preaching designed to prepare Israel for the kingdom. Is everybody getting that? Hopefully. Be... 
Yeah, Sermon on the Mount's not for us. It's for the it's for Israel when Jesus comes back to be with the Jews. Not for the church. Okay, good. Forty four. Dispensational premillennials hold to three bodily resurrections. One, prior to the tribulation, that's where um, there's a resurrection of the righteous dead from the age of grace and rapture of the living saints along with the Holy Spirit. Bet you didn't know that the Holy Spirit gets raptured out too. Two, the second resurrection is believers who die during the tribulation and Old Testament saints will be raised and join the church in heaven at the end of tribulation. And the third resurrection is after Christ reigns in person on earth on the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, the believers from the millennium and the unbelieving of all times shall be raised. And they have two future comings of Christ. First, Christ comes for his saints prior to the tribulation. It's the rapture. And then seven years later, he has another physical coming with his saints after the tribulation for ethnic Israel. Okay, So Christ comes, gets his church, go back up into the air, come back down after seven years, millennial kingdom on earth. Okay, thousand years. Here's the basic timeline for premillennialism, the pre-mill, pre-trib view. 45. The first five dispensations have elapsed prior to the cross. In this system, the events of Revelation 20 chronologically follow those of Revelation 19, just like historical pre-mills. Jesus came to earth in his first advent, bringing with him an offer of the kingdom to the Jews who rejected him. When Israel rejected Jesus, God's prophetic clock was stopped. The parenthesis between the 69th week and the 70th week of Daniel 9. During this time, the almost 2,000 years parenthesis of number 6, while the prophetic clock is stopped, Jesus is not reigning from the throne of David. He is engaged instead in his priestly work. So he's not doing kingly work right now. He's just doing priestly work. His kingly work will take place in the future millennial kingdom. The kingdom is all not yet, and it's not for you. The kingdom is for the Jews. Everybody got that? No? Let's continue. Hopefully this will... This will so seek in, seek in. Although there are signs, there are no prophetic offense events that must take place prior to the rapture. Therefore, Jesus' second coming is imminent. And I like that about dispensationalists. Because that's the way we are too. We think Christ's coming is imminent. <clears throat> so there will be two phases to Jesus' second coming. The first phase will take prior to an intense period of tribulation. That's why they're called pre-trib. When Christ will come invisibly and secretly, in the air, he doesn't come to earth, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17. And at this time, dead believers from the church age, no Old Testament Jews, will be resurrected, and all living believers, only the church, not Israel, will be secretly raptured. 
airlifted, based on Ephesians 3, 3 to 7, to be with him in the air for seven years. And by the way, I took this straight from Tim LaHaye. Yes. So they are going to spend seven years in the air uh, to be with him for seven years in their glorified bodies, okay, because they're re resurrected. And they received the judgment called the Bema judgment. They got three judgments. So they got that first judgment that they get called the Bema. Additionally, when the church is removed before the tribulation, the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be removed as well, based on 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 to 8. Charles Ryrie says the ministry of the Holy Spirit to baptize believers into the body of Christ will not be necessary during the tribulation or the millennium since the body of Christ or the church will be complete before the tribulation starts. So the Holy Spirit's work during the tribulation and millennium will follow the lines of his work in the Old Testament. Then the seven-year period of severe tribulation begins. The seven years is based on the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks from Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Tim LaHaye says it is doubtful that many who come to Christ during this period will live to see the millennium. The seven-year tribulation will have two equal periods, something like the following sequence events. This stuff gets crazy. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist, the beast from the sea of Revelation 13, signs an agreement with Israel providing protection for them and rebuilding the temple. The Antichrist suffers what looks like a fatal wound, yet still lives. 144,000 Jews are sealed as believers and act as evangelists. The false prophet, also known as the beast from the earth of Revelation 13, arises promoting worship of the Antichrist and doing great miracles on behalf of the beast. The seals and trumpet judgments are poured out on the world during this period, Revelation 6 to 8. By the start of the second half, at least half of the world will have died from these judgments. Okay, So during the second three and a half years, the Antichrist will be, begin persecuting Israel as he cuts his covenant with them, sets himself up as God in the rebuilt Jewish temple, so they have to have a rebuilt Jewish temple, and demands worship from the world. The Antichrist commits the abomination that causes desolation in the rebuilt Jerusalem temple, starting with an intense, intense persecution of Israel and believers. The two witnesses minister in Jerusalem are killed, and three and a half days later are raised to life and ascend to heaven. That's in Revelation 11, 1 to 14. More judgments of God are poured out upon the world. The bold judgments of Revelation 15 and 16. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, the War of Armageddon takes place. The Antichrist, along with the false prophet, will attack the people of God. But Christ will come bodily this time with his saints and defeat the forces of evil in this battle of, of Armageddon. At this time, Christ will see the conversion of physical Israel. Satan is bound and the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. So the second coming of Jesus bodily this time occurs at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Those who manage to survive the tribulation, both Jews and Gentiles, 
will be judged in what is known as the sheep and goats judgment of Matthew 25, 31 to 46 to determine who is worthy to enter the millennium, to inherit the kingdom. So the kingdom is Christ's millennial reign. Is that making sense? Okay. So the sheep, the believers of the saved, will be left on earth to enter the millennium, and the goats, the unbelievers of the lost, will be killed and not allowed to enter the millennium. These saved Israelites and saved Gentiles will then enter the millennium in their natural, physical, unglorified bodies. So at this point, which is, we're talking about Christ's bodily second coming, the bodily resurrection also occurs for Old Testament saints and those believers who died during the tribulation. These resurrected and glorified saints will join the Christians who were raptured before the tribulation to reign with Christ during the millennium. Christ now begins his political millennial reign. He ascends the throne of David in Jerusalem and rules over a Jewish kingdom in order to fill all Old Testament prophecy regarding Israel. There will be a restoration of national ethnic Israel where God will fulfill all the covenant promises he made to Israel, promises to Abraham and David, etc. So during the millennium, God and Christ will again be worshipped in accordance with Old Testament ordinances that originated with the Mosaic Law and that appear frequently in Old Kingdom, kingdom uh, prophecies. Uh, examples are regarding a land, a city, a temple, priests, memorial sacrifices, holy days. The subjects of Christ's rule are primarily those Israelites who entered the kingdom in their natural bodies. So at the beginning of the millennium, there are no unregenerate, unbelieving people on earth. Because, remember what happened. Those who were not worthy didn't go into the millennium. So you had to be worthy. At the end of this literal thousand-year millennium, Satan will be loosed and will deceive people, leading one last by battle against Christ and his followers, the battle of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20. Again, Christ will win a decisive victory over Satan who is cast into the lake of fire. At this time, another resurrection occurs, which will consist of those believers who died during the millennium. Additionally, the wicked dead of all times will be resurrected and judged in the final great white throne judgment. Christ will then usher in the new heavens and new earth, and the destinies of all mankind will be finalized. My first critique is Mark's critique. Anybody in here ever watched the movie It's a Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe? Do you remember when he's in his garage and he's got newspaper clippings and pictures and yarn? I'm telling you, that is... That is dispensational premillennialism. You gotta go here and tie a yarn over to here and then tie another. I mean, it is. So my concern is, um, I don't think this is number forty-six. You're filling the blank. I don't think it's a natural reading of the Bible. I don't see how you could get a thousand theologians in a room and again ever have them come up with this. I don't know how they came up with it. Forgive me, Tim. I also thought it was like putting together a thousand 
I know it is. Yeah, Ed, are you raising your hand? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, Ron. I'm telling you. Yeah. The funny thing is, is again, many dispensationalists use their millennial view as the touchstone of orthodoxy. If you don't believe that, they're suspicious that you can even be a Christian. Okay, here's an Amil's critique, number 47. The thousand years will not be a blissful theocratic-like state. Rather, the millennium is a wilderness period filled with persecution, trials, and tribulations. The millennium is not future. We're in it now, according to Amils. Number 48, Amils disagree with dispensationalism. <laughs> chapter 20 chronologically follows chapter 19. Revelations 19, 11 through 26 are not chronologically sequential but are parallel and recapitulative. Recapitulative. Recapitulation. It's telling the story over. Just like Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2 is the same story as Genesis 1. Genesis 20 is the same story as Genesis 19. Okay? They're recapitulations. They're not sequential. Say that. Speak louder. Yeah, yeah. Same event, same event. Different angles, exactly. Okay, so now you know where all mills are in that. Um, number 49, the binding of Satan. Scripture says Satan was bound at the first coming of Christ, Matthew 12, 28 to 29. If the binding of Satan takes place chronologically after chapter 19, we're left with a puzzling question. Why does Satan need to be bound? There's nobody left in chapter 19 because everybody has been killed in chapter 19. Amils are further concerned that dispensationalists believe that unbelieving men and women will still have the opportunity to come to saving faith in Christ for at least a thousand years subsequent to his physical return. Number 50, post-mill, amill, and pre-mill dispute the radical distinction between Israel and the church the hermeneutical principles that underlie dispensationalism and much of the dispensationalist exegesis. In Romans 9 and Galatians 3, for example, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that Paul regarded to the church, Jew and Gentile alike, as the true heir to the promises originally made to national Israel. God's purpose is not to save two distinct peoples divided by ethnicity, but to save his people, the elect, a multitude which no man can number, and which includes each and every one of those God has chosen, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Number 51, Israel does not always mean Israel. 
Paul, for example, identifies Christ, not ethnic Israel, as Abraham's seed, the true Israel, in Galatians 3.16. The belief that God has distinct redemptive purposes for Israel and for the Gentiles is highly problematic in light, light of texts like Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Number 52 concerns with the literal hermeneutic. The essence of the Old Testament is the revelation of Jesus Christ hidden in type and shadow. Christ was hidden in type and shadow in the Old Testament. How do we know this? Well, Jesus himself taught us that in Luke 24, 27, while walking along the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament from the New Testament, which is rightly the way it should be done. 53, judgments. Everyone else says just one. For we must all, and 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good and evil. 54, regarding comings. He came once, and he will come once more. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Number 55 regarding the seven-year tribulation. If it is asked where in Scripture there is authority for a seven-year period like dispensational sets forth as elapsing between the rapture and revelation, the answer must be there is none. 56. Not all of the Bibles meant for the church age. Another serious defect in dispensationalist teaching is its doctrine that many portions of the Bible are not meant for the church age at all. That is, not for Christians, but they are intended for a future Jewish-led kingdom. They, for instance, would say, you as Christians are not to use the Lord's Prayer. That prayer is for the millennial period. 57, regarding the temple. Even if a temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, it would be an idol temple with no more theological significance than a Hindu temple or an Islamic mosque. Nothing that might occur in a rebuilt temple could be an abomination of desolation. Jesus describes his body as the temple in John 2, 18-22, and the Apostle John writes by revelation that there is no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem since its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And last, it's the dispensational trump card. Man, they, they love to throw this trump card down. They caricature amillennialism by accusing the Reformed people of embracing replacement theology, where the church replaces. We bump the Jews out, okay? So where the church replaces national Israel and the purposes of God. This is a label slapped on us by those who disagree with our eschatology. But we don't say we replace them. We're saying we're, we're the same people, the elect. Any questions on dispensationalism? Did I make sense enough? I hope you can get this, the, the, the sequencing of it. Um,
you know. Jim, you you got a funny grin on. Huh? But the hard thing about that, Mark, is I don't know how they can say that the church age is the gap between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's visions. I, I mean, I don't know. what This stuff is just made up. Like Tim says, they're looking at puzzle pieces, and they're, oh, I think that, we'll take this, and we're going to place it over here. And It is really mental gymnastics. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think we got time to go through theonomic postmillennialism. Number 59, postmillennialism is the belief that Christ will return after the millennium, not before the millennium. The older form of postmillennialism is practiced by Jonathan Edwards or Princeton theologians such as Hodge and Warfield, has little in common emphasis with the modern theonomic approach to eschatology which emphasizes the rise of a theocracy. And a theocracy is a government with civil authorities enforce God's law as the vehicle of dominion. Dominion, which is the version we will examine since it is the form you are most likely to run into. By the way, if you, if we have any Federal Visionists or Doug Wilson people, CREC people, they're all post mills okay? But we have post we have post mills in the PCA too. I mean, our pastor that was here subsequently after Tim's first run was theonomic and post millennial. Carl, that's why I'm teaching this, is probably what you will most likely run into. Okay. 60. Since the 1970s, post millennialism has seen a resurgence in America that arises in connection to a theological view called theonomy because it asserts that all of society is to be brought into obedience to the Mosaic Law. How many laws are there in the Mosaic Law? Six hundred and thirteen. Yeah, you've you never been through those? The honest man, they pour through this stuff. Pour through it. I'm sorry. Am I being too cruel? Probably. Okay. Into obedience to the Mosaic Law. Theonomy is a word that brings together the words for God and law. The view is also called Reconstructionism because it advocates the reconstruction of society or Dominion theology because its theology teaches that biblical Christianity is to rule every sphere of society. Theonomists hold that churches will advance Christ's kingdom by implementing the general equity of old covenant judicial law. A good example of general equity is in 1 Corinthians 9.9 where we get one of the uh, Mosaic laws interpreted for us. It says, you shall not muzzle an oxen in the, the threshing floor. What does... What is the general equity of that? Well, they tell us, okay? Tell us is pay a man for his work. That's the general equity. So by not muzzling the oxen, you let him eat. You let him earn his wages. So that's 
That's what general equity is, if you want to know. And you'd have to go through that for all those. Well, there's there, like there's that one about building a parapet on your house so that someone doesn't fall out. General equity for that would be building a fence around your pool so that nobody drowns. That's the general equity for which you will be punished for not obeying if you haven't put. Huh? I know. Okay, let's move on. So the general equity of Old Covenant judicial law is the important thing. 61, the point of Christian Reconstruction theology is that the church will set up a theocratic government, Christians will evangelize the world, and those things will result in Christ's return to earth. It is a Christian obligation to keep the Mosaic case laws, and it is the government's responsibility to enforce that law according to biblical dictates. Building Christian nations, they are big on that concept. Christian nations. Post mills are huge. Building Christian nations is inherently a post-millennial project. The post mills look for a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of a glorious age, a golden age of the church upon the earth through the preaching of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit, and looks forward to all nations becoming Christians and living in peace with one another. The Pulse Mill relates all prophecies to history and time. They don't take any of them to the new heavens and new earth the way Amels does. Okay. So after the triumph of Christianity throughout the earth during the millennial golden age, a Christianizing of the nation, the Pulse Mill looks for the second coming of the Lord. 62. Many post-millennialists teach that the millennial age is the entire period of time, pretty much the way all mills do, between Christ's first and second advents. As we will see, this means that contemporary versions of post-millennialism are very close in many ways to contemporary amillennialism. The main difference between the two is not so much the timing of the millennium as it is the nature of the millennium. The millennium to which the post-millennial looks forward to is a golden age of spiritual prosperity during this present dispensation. That is, during the church age. And is to be brought about through forces now active in the world. Ethnic Jews will ultimately be converted over time through the preaching of the gospel. The church is spiritual Israel. So they're kind of like the Amils. It is the Israel God. There's neither Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ. 63. Post mills have an optimistic confidence that the world nations will become disciples of Christ, that the church will go to fill the earth, and that Christianity will become the dominant principle rather than the exception to the rule. The penal sanctions of God's law will only be enacted in a country where there has already been a widespread turning to the gospel and an appropriate nurturing period of personal and social sanctification. They're big on sanctification. The, those penalties enforced and can be enforced only by a populace that loves the Lord and his blessed direction for its well-being. Most post-millennialists tend to hold a partial interpretations which say the second coming of Christ and bodily resurrection are still future 
but agree that the tribulation period described in the Olivet Discourse, as well as the coming of Christ in judgment in Matthew 24, was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So here's your basic timeline. God's kingdom, like the Amils, is a present earthly reality that began at Christ's first advent, at Christ's death and resurrection. Satan was bound, meaning his ability to deceive the nations was restricted, thus opening the door for worldwide evangelism, just like Amils. After his ascension, Christ reigns from heaven, and his kingdom is on earth. He will continue to rule until he has put all his enemies under his feet, just like Amil's. We are in the millennium now. Christ's reign, the millennium, is between the ascension and the consummation, the second coming. A thousand years is a figurative description for most post-mills. Through the entire age of the new covenant, during which the martyred saints are raised in their souls at the moment of death to live and reign with Christ in heaven. The millennium will slowly, progressively become a golden age. Prophecies of destruction or wilderness wanderings are viewed preteristically. They happened in the past. Okay? During the millennium, there will be a future fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of a glorious age of the church through the spreading of the preaching of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. As Christians strive to subdue the earth in a holy and spiritual fashion, they should expect their cultural labors to have eternal significance. Over time, the nations will be converted to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. As this occurs, the Old Testament judicial case laws and their penal sanctions will be reinstituted as society is reconstructed. This will result in a long age of peace and prosperity. The new age will not be essentially different from the present. It emerges as an increasing proportion of the world's inhabitants are converted to Christianity. Evil is not eliminated, but will be reduced to a minimum as the moral and spiritual influence of the Christians and the civil enforcement of the Old Testament, Old Testament judicial laws is instituted. As the church assumes greater importance and power, most social, economic, and educational problems will be, will be solved. Christ returns to a Christianized world. The Great Commission will be fulfilled. The way that we hasten to the day of God, 2 Peter 3.12, is by evangelistic endeavor, knowing that Jesus will not return to earth until all his enemies are subdued. Christ returns physically, the parousia, at the end of his kingdom rule, the end of his millennial reign. The rapture occurs at the end of the millennium when believers of all times who have just been raised together from the dead with believers who have just been transformed or caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, just like Amil's. There's only one resurrection involving all mankind and only one judgment in the end. Judgment day involves both the saved and the lost. Went to life, other to condemnation, just like Amil's. Resurrections in Revelation 20 are spiritual. The first resurrection is the passing of the soul into God's presence. And there's a lot of Amil's that believe that too. Okay, here's the critique. Everybody got the timeline? It's pretty simple. It's just, it's like all millennialism, except we see a golden age where 
The world is Christianized. When Christ returns, everybody's saved. He's returning to a wonderful kingdom that happened uh, before he got here. So he comes post after the millennium. Okay. Critique 69. Of course, pre-mills, dispensational, historical, will argue for Christ's return before the millennium and for a physical, earthly presence of Christ during the millennium. Dispensationalists will argue that Israel always means Israel. Therefore, the church is airlifted prior to the tribulation so that God can fulfill his promise to the Jews. 67. Another weakness of post-millennial Postmillennialism is the determination of the beginning of the golden millennial age. When do the when do the thousand years begin? So one of the problems with these guys is, I would say, the return of Christ is the least imminent in postmillennialism. We can't they can't say come Lord Jesus because we got a lot of stuff that has to happen first. Okay. Since the thousand years, I don't think have begun for them. 68. Amils have problems with theonomy. One, that it tends to focus on the law more than the gospel. And two, that it emphasizes the external more the internal. We disagree that a child who curses his mother or father should be put to death. <coughs> who agrees that a person who does any work on the Sabbath deserves capital punishment. And for me, the biggest argument is bacon or theonomy. Take your pick. Huh? They're kosher, dude. They don't eat bacon. That's, that's an Old Testament law. Bacon or theonomy. The Westminster Confession 19, chapter 4 says... To them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. A man may love to run that general equity into the ground. I don't know what they'd say about Bacon. 69. The covenant law is for Israel, not the nation's. The Lord gave the law to Israel. The detailed stipulation applied thus to Israel and not necessarily to the other nations. 70. The preterist interpretation is criticized by the majority of scholars that date the writing of the book of Revelation to around AD 95 or 96. You got a call on that one, Tim? Tim? You got a call on that one? The writing of the book of Revelation? Uh, well, I know they want to say, yeah, they want, if, if yeah. I just wanted to see what your what, what your view of the writing of Revelation was. I know. Okay. Okay, 71. Partial preterists believe that in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, 
there was a parousia of or coming of the Christ, but it was not the parousia. So they they're getting a little dispensational there with these comings of Christ. Seventy-two. Biblical texts where the entire sweep of age between the first and second comings of Christ is described and foretold in detail by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no mention is made of a golden age. That's really my biggest concern. Um, is If it was there, I would say, dude, there it is. I don't see anything in the Bible that predicts this this concept of victoriousness of Christianity in, in the nations. 73. Postmillennialism undermines the New Testament emphasis on the church imminent expectation of Christ's return. That's just to say that postmill undermines the element of watchfulness that is essential to the New Testament church. 74. Postmills generally believe that Jesus returns to a saved earth. He does not return to save the earth as Amils believe. And lastly, is Mark's critique. 75. My personal concern and experience with theonomic postmillennialism is decide their so, despite their so-called optimism, they are wall builders, not bridge builders, due to their extreme emphasis on the law and works righteousness. In theory, they strongly believe in evangelism. However, in practice, it is ignored. They are known to be combative when discussing their view of eschatology because it is their top-tier doctrine. We don't, we don't run around saying, Amelin. most people don't even, I mean, we don't talk much about it. It's just our view. But if you're theonomic and post-mill, everybody... All your brothers know who you are. I mean, they have, there's a secret society of the anomic post mills. There is. Believe me, man. I've seen it. That is my lesson. Probably. Yes, Ron? I know. It is. It is. Yes. Most Baptistic theological seminary types are dispensational. But most people are dispensational not because they choose it, because that's the only one they're familiar with due to you know all the left behind uh, movies and such. Um, Well, here's all I got to say about reading Revelations literally. Man, they got so many gruesome beasts, and I mean, how do you literally read that? You know, you have to allegorize it. You have to 
do spiritualize it as the sawmills do. But well, that's what late great planet Earthwood said, man. Those those grasshoppers were Chinese helicopters, and yeah. see, basically, when I read it. The, the concept of late great planet Earth is that the return of Christ was going to happen with when one generation of the founding of Israel, which was in 1948. So we all thought, man, Jesus is coming back in 1988, man, and I want to be raptured, dude. I don't want to have be left behind. And um, So there was a lot of that craziness. But Yes, Ron? Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly. There are a lot of similarities between postmillennialism and dispensationalism, and and they are both, as I said earlier, that's that's kind of their their touchstone for orthodoxy. You know, if I'm telling you, if post mills came to our church, they would say, you all are antinomians because all you hear is grace. <laughs> That's your badge of honor. Tim, do you do I, do I need to give the floor to you? Yeah, just a um, This is the last slide. So what comes next? Well, uh, what we're going to do is have a live on session to set up an interview for the last 30 minutes each. Those of you who want to go through the interview, either be a deacon or an elder, you'll be examined for qualifications, fitness, and sort of tell us where you are. I encourage everybody to do it. Be here. Uh, so all that on a Saturday morning.
Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. Help us to believe that it will happen. Live in anticipation of that blessed day. We pray in your name.